Hello, and welcome to First Ladies of the United States. I'm Zelda. Today, we will be talking about Abigail Smith Adams, the first second lady and the second first lady of the United States. But first, some housekeeping. As those of you who follow the Facebook and Twitter pages already know, my computer decided to die the second week of March. That was the same week the U.S. began to take the threats of COVID-19 seriously. I didn't manage to get my computer back from repairs until more than a month later, so I decided to postpone this episode to May 1st. With all the extra time and the vast amount of resources available, Abigail Adams has completely gotten away from me. She's incredibly well attested, and she wrote hundreds of letters and received hundreds more. We know more about her than any other woman of the time period. In order to do her justice, I'm splitting her episode into two parts. Part one, which we are going to cover today, is going to follow Abigail from her birth through the end of the Revolutionary War. Part two will cover her time as the American minister's wife through her first ladyhood into the end of her life and her enduring legacy. This is also a very clever styling tactic. Libraries in my area are closed, and I don't have access to their resources. Since I already had Abigail Adams' resources on hand, this hasn't been a problem for her, but it will make researching Martha and Patty Jefferson difficult, and Sally Hemings almost impossible. Hopefully, the libraries reopen before this becomes more of an issue than it already is. Now, on with the show. Abigail Smith was born November 11, 1744, in Weymouth, Massachusetts. Her father, William Smith, was a minister from a merchant family who studied at Harvard. Her mother, Elizabeth Quincy, was the daughter of an old and prominent family that owned land in Weymouth and Braintree. Abigail was the second of four children. Her older sister, Mary, was born in 1741. Younger brother, Billy, was born in 1746 and youngest sister Betsy was born in 1750. The Smiths had a fairly comfortable middle-class life, with a robust extended family helping raise the children. Abigail was especially close to her grandmother, Quincy, who she described as merry and chatty. She frequently went to stay with her grandparents for long stretches of time. She and her siblings would also visit their uncle Isaac Smith in Boston in exciting big city trips. As a child, Abigail was frequently ill, she caught every bug and bacterium that went around. When she was sick, she was attended to by her cousin, Dr. Cotton Tufts. Because Abigail was sick so often, she didn't attend school like her siblings. Her formal education was haphazard but enthusiastic. She had full access to her family's considerable library, and there were plenty of adults to ask questions of. The only subject that was off the table for the Smith girls were ancient languages. Latin and Greek were reserved for boys only. The three Smith girls also learned housekeeping from their mother. There were no chores that were too low. There was no shame and a good deal of pride in peeling your own potatoes and doing your own laundry. I'm sorry to say, however, that it's certain that the Smith family owned at least four enslaved servants. A married couple named Tom and Peg, a woman named Phoebe, and a boy purchased in 1761 named Cato. These folks are who would have done the hardest and dirtiest jobs most of the time. Around 1755, a man by the name of Richard Cranch moved to town and befriended Minister Smith. When, within a few years, he was courting Abigail's sister Mary. Cranch was an eccentric and brilliant man, and he was the first person 
to give Abigail Smith a book of poetry. Sparking a passion, Abigail would have all of her life. In the reams of letters she wrote over her long and literate life, she would quote poetry more often even than the Bible. This love affair with poetry began to extend to prose as well. She particularly loved the novels of Samuel Richardson. Also in 1755, the French and Indian War broke out. As a minister's daughter, religion permeated every aspect of her life. The religion of the time, and of her father, was a practice of religious patriotism, belief in miraculous victory and divine intervention, and that, quote, providence supported virtuous nations, end quote. The Smiths were moderate Puritans, what we might call today rational utilitarians. They strongly believed that God revealed himself through the Bible, and that every Christian must have the education to read it and come to their own conclusions. True religion would be obtained through both faith and reason. All three Smith girls were very devout, and Minister Smith proudly admitted them to the Weymouth congregation when they were 15. Billy, on the other hand, never was, and didn't seem to care much about being admitted, which weighed heavily on the family. When Abigail was 14 and Mary was 17, a young lawyer from Braintree was visiting Weymouth, and they made fun of him in church. It's unlikely this was their first time meeting him, since he was friends with Richard Cranch, who was courting Mary and Ernest by this point. It is, however, the first time John Adams records the existence of the Smith sisters, who had hurt his feelings. He called them, quote, neither fond, nor frank, nor candid, unquote, which is a bit harsh, but given they were teenagers, it's also probably true. While Abigail was a teenager, she spent longer and longer stays in Boston, where she established a social circle away from the watchful eyes of her parents. These included her cousin Isaac Smith Jr., cousin Hannah Quincy, Eunice Payne, Polly Palmer, and several other young women of good Boston families. Incidentally, Eunice Payne is of no relation to the common-sense author Thomas Payne. She was the daughter of a reverend, and sister of Declaration of Independence signer Robert Treat Payne. These friends established a letter-writing circle, complete with pen names. Abigail named herself Diana, goddess of the moon. As Mary and Richard Cranch's courtship grew more serious, John Adams began to accompany Richard to the Smith house more and more often. By the time Mary and Richard got married in 1761, John and Abigail were beginning to court. Their letters are frankly super cute. They refer to each other as dear friend and often signed off with their pen names. One of John's nicknames for Abigail during this time was Miss Adorable, and he flirted with her via awkward science metaphors. By fall 1763, they were trying to set a date for their wedding. A smallpox epidemic in Boston prevented them from getting married that spring. But on October 25, 1764, Abigail Smith married John Adams in Weymouth Meeting House. Her father officiated and gave a sermon from the line Matthew 11, 8, quote, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil, unquote. The sermon does not survive, but goodness, that is an ominous line. Most of the works that I read were of the opinion that Minister Smith was ripping at his new son-in-law, and it seems in character. 
Once they were married, the Adamses moved to a little salt box house a couple of meters from John's mother's cottage. They borrowed a not-enslaved, free servant named Judah for the winter. Mrs. Adams didn't like her, but felt obligated to quote-unquote take care of her due to some family drama. Abigail wasn't happy with the state of affairs, but we don't have Judah's feelings on the matter. I can only assume that Judah was resentful right back at her, because that's how I would feel. Although she may have just been happy to get out of Mrs. Adams' household. Abigail and John had a very happy honeymoon, evidenced by the fact that Abigail was pregnant basically immediately. Three months after their wedding, however, John had to go back to work, thus starting a pattern that would repeat for most of their lives. As a lawyer, John had to ride circuit. Literally, he had to get on a horse and ride to different towns in Massachusetts to do his lawyering. Today, this would be a relatively straightforward task, and he'd be able to drive home most days or at least on weekends. Back then, however, it took longer to get anywhere, so John could be out for weeks or months at a time. Despite his worrying and hoping to get home in time, John missed the birth of his and Abigail's first child, Abigail, who the family and me from now on called Nabby. As he did with his own children, Abigail's father was the one to baptize little Nabby. Abigail was closely watched following her birth. Because she had been so sickly as a child, she was considered at high risk for childbed fevers. In the spring of 1766, both she and Nabby caught whooping cough, although they both recovered fully. Abigail simply adored her little Nabby, calling her, quote, a charming girl whose pretty smiles already delight my heart. No matter how charming and beautiful a baby is, however, they are not an adult. With John off on circuit and her family scattered across Massachusetts, Abigail was lonely. She frequently wrote to her sister Mary during this time, both of them scrawling out letters between one chore and the next, early in the morning and late at night. Abigail kept no diary. Instead, she wrote letters every day to multiple people, John, Mary and Betsy, and other friends and relatives, and she processed and reflected on her world in this way. Shortly following Nabby's birth, Abigail also discovered Fortis's Sermons to Young Women, a handbook on genteel Christian femininity. What Fortis offered was a way for women to develop their potential within their roles as wives and mothers. While in our post-Betty Friedman world, this hardly seems like feminist forward thinking. It was something of a godsend for a revolutionary middle-class woman like Abigail. Fortis encouraged women to actively manage their household and learn and utilize new skills and to read widely and sharpen their intellect. He stressed personal morality over correctness of belief, and the role of the wife as a true, quote, helpmate, who reigned over the domestic and social spheres. Abigail found in Fortis's teachings a sense of self-worth that could have easily become lost to her. It is also now that Abigail took up the role of deputy husband for the first time. It was common enough for wives to do business on behalf of their husbands when the husbands were otherwise unavailable. Since John was riding circuit, she was able to direct farm labor on his behalf. It would be good practice for what was to come. Abigail had a second child in the summer of 1767. As her due date neared, her beloved grandfather John Quincy grew ill. She gave birth to her little boy on July 11, 1767. Just two days later, Grandfather Quincy died. 
Abigail's mother Elizabeth suggested that she name her baby boy after his great-grandfather, and Abigail agreed. Mourning the death of one John Quincy, they baptized and celebrated the birth of another. On some level, Abigail had always known John was ambitious. However, it was becoming increasingly apparent to her what he actually sought. In the words of the day, he sought fame, but not in the way we might understand it. Rather than wanting to be a Kardashian, he wanted to be an influential great man, who both his peers and later historians would look to with respect. In April 1768, when Abigail was entirely recovered from childbirth and roads were clear of winter ice, the Adamses moved to Boston. They took up residence in, quote, the White House on Brattle Square. Boston was a, quote, noisy, busy town, unquote. It was the capital of Massachusetts and a major political and social center of colonial America. Abigail could go to market and get goods from all around the world and news hot off the presses. She went to church with some of the most influential families in the colonies, including the Hancocks and Warrens. However, the Adamses moved to Boston at a messy turning point in colonial politics. The spring of 1768 saw the arrival of British General Thomas Gage and his troops to enforce the Townsend Acts. The British soldiers, sometimes called redcoats because they wore, you guessed it, red coats, regularly drilled in Brattle Square, right outside of the Adamses' White House. I imagine it might have been a little difficult putting two toddlers down for a nap when there's a regiment drilling right outside your window. Abigail also had a front row seat to the mobs that formed. John's cousin Sam was something of a rabble-rouser, and the mobs had a way of affecting the politics of Boston, of Massachusetts, and of the entire Atlantic seaboard. As Abigail's opposition to British rule grew, she began to reconsider her own views on slavery. How, she reasoned, could one object to being persecuted by the British, only to then turn around and persecute Africans? Her views took a while to evolve, but by 1774, Abigail wrote to John that, quote, I wish most sincerely there was not a slave within the province. It always appeared a most inquisitive scheme to me, fight ourselves, for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have, unquote. In the winter of 1768, Abigail gave birth to her third child, a little girl named Susanna, after John's mother. After Susanna's birth, Abigail seems to have suffered from a severe anxiety. She wrote almost no letters during this time, and the ones she did write were full of worry. Susanna's health seemed weak, and Abigail was pregnant again. In the late spring of 1769, Abigail took daughter Susanna to Braintree to be taken care of by mother-in-law Susanna, since the Adamses thought that the bad air of the city might be what was making her ill. Unfortunately, this didn't seem to help, and the little girl died on February 4, 1770. Both John and Abigail took the loss of their baby hard. The course of history didn't care much about individuals, however. On March 5th, just a month after Susanna's death and seven months into Abigail's fourth pregnancy, a Boston mob and a clutch of British soldiers got into a fight on King Street less than half a mile from the Adams house. According to Acre, John, quote, long remembered that on the evening of the brawl he rushed home past soldiers with fixed bayonets to calm the fears of his pregnant wife, unquote. 
There was good reason for Abigail to be afraid. With her own heavy pregnancy and two very young children, it would be difficult for her to get away if either side got out of hand and began doing stupid things like burning down houses. A young mother of two toddlers would be an easy target for looters or rioters. John and Abigail also depended on each other for emotional, spiritual, and intellectual support. Simply having him there must have taken a load off of her shoulders. In May 1770, Abigail and John welcomed their second son, Charles, into the world. And at the same time, John took and began working on the defense of the soldiers involved in the Boston Massacre. Abigail and John thought it was important that the soldiers be given a fair trial, that it would bolster the patriot cause to show their ideals applied even to the enemy. John was well respected enough that in June, he was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Even so, there were some among the patriots that deemed him a traitor to the cause for defending British soldiers in court. After a grueling defense in October and November of 1770, the Adamses were exhausted and frankly sick of Boston. The family moved back to Braintree in early 1771, and John split his time between there and his work obligations in Boston. That spring, Abigail received a letter from her cousin Isaac detailing his travel in England. Despite all that was happening in the colonies, Abigail was both happy for him and a bit envious. She wrote back that she wished she could see it, that, quote, should nature have formed me of the other sex, I should certainly have been a roamer, unquote. She also asked him to do her a favor and to visit the famous woman historian Catherine Macaulay. Abigail was immensely interested in women of learning and renown. She wanted to know how they had achieved what they did. After a year and a half living in Braintree again, the Adamses moved back to Boston. It was about time to get serious about the children's education. Nabby was seven and John Quincy was five. Abigail took her role as the primary teacher very seriously. She called her children her tender twigs and made connections with women with older children to ask them what they did right. One of those people was Mercy Otis Warren, a fairly famous author and mother of several teenaged and adult children who were mostly doing well for themselves. Abigail was a bit starstruck at first, but they quickly became friends and regular pen pals. It was clear that Warren generally valued John's opinions more, though, which grated on Abigail. But otherwise, they were something of kindred spirits. Warren was the first person outside of Abigail's own family with whom she shared critiques, at first purely literary, but gradually she shared her opinions on social norms and even politics. While all of this toing and froing of Abigail and John moving between Boston and Braintree was happening, and the revolution was beginning to break out, Abigail's brother Billy Smith had started a family. Unfortunately, he was an alcoholic with no money and his wife, being married, couldn't make money for them herself. The children had to be farmed out to relatives. John and Abigail took custody of Louisa in 1775 when she was about two. Simultaneously, one of the Warren boys began to go off the rails, getting into alcohol and gambling debts he couldn't pay off. And Abigail's sister Betsy was risking her good name by becoming too friendly with a boarder in their parents' home. 
Abigail was determined to not let her children go down the same path, and firmly believed that teaching them correctly during their childhoods would prevent it. This belief also made her nervous. She was well aware of her lack of a formal education, and scared that she might not be up to raise to the task of raising. She was well aware of her lack of formal education, and scared that she might not be able to live up to the task of raising four well-educated, thoughtful, moral Christian citizens. Nevertheless, she did her best. Abigail read her children a chapter from the Bible every day, a habit which John Quincy would keep for his entire life. Likewise, she hooked John Quincy on a children's book series called Giles Gingerbread. She taught the children household chores and Nabby household management. While she was at it, she wrote Betsy a very scolding, bossy letter, the kind of thing I might have written to my sister when she was in high school and acting recklessly, trying to warn her off even the appearance of impropriety. This letter had the exact opposite effect, as one might imagine. Betsy wrote back in an offended huff, and even included an affidavit with forged signatures claiming that she and the boarder named Shaw had no romantic intentions or entanglement. In 1773, the British Parliament passed the Tea Act, which attempted to get Americans to buy taxed tea. The Adamses were, by this time, full-blown patriots. They firmly believed that Parliament had no right to tax them, as they did not have elected representation in Parliament. This sentiment was felt widely across the 13 American British colonies and a network of merchants, artists, and smugglers worked to prevent tax tea from being sold, or even making landfall. In November 1773, an extremely unfortunate Captain James Hall of Nantucket, Massachusetts, brought tea from London back to Boston Harbor, not knowing what lay in store. When the ship Dartmouth landed in Boston Harbor, the law was that she had to be unloaded within 20 days and import duties paid or else her cargo would be confiscated. A meeting was called by Sam Adams, and the patriots of the city called on Hall to sail out of Boston without unloading. However, the governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson, would not allow Hall to sail out of the harbor without unloading and paying his taxes. Hall sat in the harbor, caught between Scylla and Charybdis. The governor and his livelihood on the one hand, and the rebellious Bostonians on the other. On the last night of the Dartmouth's deadline, when she still had neither been unloaded nor set sail, a mob formed from a meeting at Old South Meeting House and stormed the ship, throwing the tea in the harbor. The night of the Boston Tea Party, John Adams was riding circuit. Abigail would have been home alone and likely slept through the night. It doesn't seem to have had much of an impact on her at all, actually. She proceeded with visiting her family for Christmas and New Year's at the end of December a rare trip without John that left him in Boston with the children. In a reversal of their regular pattern, she wrote him letters about how she longed for home and the kids. The Boston Tea Party was something of a turning point in their lives, however. It was a domino that knocked over many, many others. In 1774, the colonies decided to get together and hold a Continental Congress. This Congress would direct the combined efforts of the colonies to organize resistance to English tyranny. John was elected to be a representative for Massachusetts. 
The Adamses moved back to Braintree and made preparations for a long absence from John. He made instructions for Abigail on how to run the farm while he rode semi-circuit and departed for Philadelphia on August 10th. Her first summer and fall of riding the farm were successful, and John returned in the winter. In the wee hours of April 19th, the first shots of the American Revolution were fired as American Minutemen de defended the Old North Bridge from Boston regulars outside of Lexington, Massachusetts. The Battle of Lexington and Concord, or the shot heard round the world, was even at that time widely recognized as a turning point, the first time American militia and British troops had clashed on the battlefield. Abigail's brother Billy was a captain in the Lincoln Militiamen, one of the unit's president Lexington, and it was days before they heard that he had survived the battle. John left for Philadelphia as soon as he could, less than a week after. The Continental Congress had to reconvene to govern the war effort. Abigail was left on the front lines with several young children and a farm to run. The Smiths and Quincy's suffered severe domestic disagreements because of the revolution. Whiggish and Tory cousins were hurt and betrayed by their family members' political choices. Abigail's cousin Hannah was a patriot, and her husband was a Tory. When her husband left for England in 1775, she stayed behind. Another cousin, Isaac Quincy Jr., the same Isaac that was her friend as a teenager and whose travels to London she had cheered on, was a moderate Tory and had in fact given the British directions to Concord. He moved to Exeter, England, and then wrote a rather condescending letter about it, deeply hurting Abigail. Throughout 1775, American militia moved through Braintree, reinforcing this hill, taking that one, disrupting British supply chains, Anything they could, they did. The Americans set British-occupied Boston under siege. Abigail and the eight-year-old John Quincy witnessed the Battle of Bunker Hill and the subsequent destruction of Charleston, Massachusetts. She wrote to John every week, detailing some odd combination of humdrum domestic life combined with a fear and uncertainty of war. Schools were closed, and she made the executive decision to have her children privately tutored, and that Nabby was to learn Latin and Greek alongside her brothers, a decision which John, when he found out about it, would object to. By and large, she became as efficient at running the farm as John had ever been. She required little or no backup from her husband on most issues. She also regularly received august visitors, including luminaries such as George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Charles Lee. She borrowed her husband's title for herself on occasion, styling herself as Mrs. Delegate. For, as she wrote to John, quote, Why should we not assume your titles when we give you up our names? Unquote. Once again, Abigail adopted a pen name. From a correspondence she had with Mercy Otis Warren, Abigail chose the name of Portia the wife of Brutus from the Shakespeare play Julius Caesar, and actual historical person. This was to prevent the publication of her letters in the newspapers. The British were seizing as much mail as they could, trying to prevent intercolonial cooperation, and the Adamses did not want their private business on the front page of every gazette and tribune in the country. In June, she wrote the letter made famous in the 1967 Tony Award-winning musical 1776, requesting pins. She wrote, 
I have a request to make you. Something like the barrel of sand, suppose you will think it, but really of much more importance to me. It is that you would send out Mr. Bass and purchase me a bundle of pins and put in your trunk for me. The cry for pins is so great that what we used to buy for 7.6 shillings are now 20 shillings and not to be had for that. A bundle contains 6,000, for which I used to give a dollar, but if you can procure them for 50 shillings or 3 pounds, pray let me have them. This was not only for her personal use. This letter marked the start of Abigail's small but lucrative import-export business. Once she received the pins, she would sell them at markup, and this working well, she would continue to write to John to send her household goods to be sold to their neighbors for the rest of the war. She also speculated in federal bonds, which were backed by French currency, as the paper money issued by Congress deflated in value more quickly than it could be disposed of, and this speculation was something that John strongly disapproved of. She earned about a 24% return on her investment every year, and over several years began to view these funds as her own. This was a radical idea, and certainly not true in the legal sense. As she was married, she was femme covert. Everything, quote, she owned was actually owned by her husband. In August 1775, John attempted to surprise Abigail by returning home for a short vacation. This did not work. He was stopped in Boston and pulled into provincial political meetings and was only able to make it into Braintree on a handful of weekends before he returned to Philadelphia. As soon as he left, an epidemic of dysentery overtook Braintree. Abigail immediately turned the house into a makeshift hospital to help the town cope, and personally treated patients. She and the youngest son, Tommy, were both then struck by it, and a serving girl named Patty came down with it and died. Abigail's mother, Elizabeth, came up from Weymouth to help nurse Abigail back to health, and in the process, she contracted the disease, too. As Abigail recovered, she attempted to nurse her mother. Unfortunately, Elizabeth Quincy Smith was unable to recover, and she died on October 1st, 1775. Abigail had not been especially emotionally close to her mother, but she had respected her and learned a lot from her. She was extremely distressed at losing her. She wrote to John on October 9th that, quote, I cannot overcome my too selfish sorrow. All of her tenderness toward me, her care and anxiety for my welfare at all times, her watchfulness over my infant years, her advice and instruction in mature age, all, all endear her memory to me and heighten my sorrow for her loss, end quote. Minister Smith and Betsy were totally distraught. Abigail sent Nabby to live with them in hopes that having a bright young girl might lift their spirits and that Nabby could help them get along without Elizabeth. By now, Nabby was ten years old and would have been able to contribute significantly to helping her aunt and grandfather with domestic chores. As the year drew on, John was able to escape Congress in December and rode home to see his family for a few weeks. He did not stay for long, returning to Philadelphia again in January, but his presence was likely a comfort to Abigail in the wake of the loss of her mother. They were each other's dearest friends, and grew ever closer in their thinking, making similar judgments, and holding themselves and others to similar standards of virtue. Shortly after John's return to Philadelphia, Henry Knox brought cannon from Fort Ticonderoga into Massachusetts, and by March, the British were evacuating Boston. 
Abigail was, on the one hand, delighted that the British were leaving, but simultaneously she feared them attacking Virginia. In the letter she wrote to John on the subject, she also wrote a passage that is her most famous quotation. On March 31, 1776, she wrote, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion, and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Unquote. The Remember the Ladies letter was an expression of a fairly radical opinion that women should be protected as full persons under the laws of the new country. Not, necessarily, that they should have the right to vote, but certainly that they should have legal recourse if their husband was abusive or a poor money manager. She utilized both her learning and humor to catch the suggestion and make it more palatable. Remember all men would be tyrants if they could was a sentiment informed and reinforced by her and John's shared education in philosophy and morality and the revolutionary politics they held. It shared the same basis as their objection to slavery. On the other hand, claiming that, quote, we are determined to foment a rebellion, unquote, is a point that may be clearly ridiculous to an 18th century sensibility. Abigail and John, patriots and abolitionists though they were, were not inclined toward political or social radicalism. To me, it's clear that her intention with this line was to lighten the mood of the letter, to add a joke to what otherwise might be perceived as an unfair criticism of her husband, an unladylike political talk. In response to the Remember the Ladies letter, John joked back with Abigail in kind, and he also sent her an early draft of the Declaration of Independence. The part she best approved of? It's condemnation of slavery. When the official finalized version made its way to Massachusetts, she was disappointed at its having been cut. As Congress drafted and voted on the Declaration of Independence, Massachusetts suffered a smallpox epidemic. General George Washington made the controversial decision to turn all of Boston into a smallpox hospital. Anyone who wanted to get inoculated could, provided they could get to Boston to do it. Abigail, her sisters, and all their children came and underwent inoculation. As we discussed in the Martha Washington episode, inoculation was the ancestor to our vaccines. To become inoculated, one underwent a procedure where puss, from a mild case of smallpox, was inserted into an open wound to induce infection. If all went well, the patient would come down with a mild case of smallpox themselves and then be immune to the disease. For Abigail, John Quincy, and Tommy, the inoculation took. For Nabby and Charlie, however, the inoculation did not actually make them sick, and they needed to do the whole thing over again. On July 18th, as they convalesced, the Declaration of Independence was read on King Street in Boston. In October 1776, John came home for nine weeks. By the time he left in January 1777, Abigail was pregnant for the last time. In July, as she neared her due date, she had a premonition that her baby was dead. A week later, she gave birth to a stillborn daughter. Nabby cried over the loss of another baby sister for hours. Abigail found herself oddly at peace. The premonition had given her time to adjust to the idea and to process her grief. 
had the baby lived, she was to have been named Elizabeth, after Abigail's mother. Another Elizabeth in Abigail's life, her sister Betsy, announced her engagement to the boarder who Abigail had disapproved of so strongly, John Shaw. Despite her sister's objections, Betsy went forward with her marriage. She also changed her name back to Elizabeth. At this time, this was uncommon. Only men shed their childhood nickname. Women usually used them all their lives. Elizabeth Shaw, however, was a bit of a rebel. In 1778, Elizabeth welcomed a son into the world, and her husband set up a boys' school in Haverhill, Massachusetts. At some point, Abigail seems to have warmed up to her brother-in-law, as she would send Charlie and Tommy to this school to further their education. By 1777, Abigail was very conscious of the fact that her children barely knew their father. Nabby and John Quincy were twelve and ten, and they hadn't lived with their father since they were eight and five. Charlie and Tommy, now seven and five, hadn't lived with him since they were babies. Abigail sometimes referred to herself as a married widow. For most of her marriage, she was terribly lonely, but she also operated practically as master of her and her family's affairs. John could send her advice, or even commands, and she did not feel the need to follow them if they contradicted what she saw to be true on the ground. She missed John terribly, and their letters at this time were increasingly romantic. In late November, John and his cousin and fellow delegate Sam Adams finally arrived in Boston, planning to go home and stay a long time. A letter, however, was waiting for John in Braintree, which Abigail had already read. John was appointed by Congress as a commissioner to France. A winter crossing on the Atlantic was dangerous, and it didn't take the Adamses long to decide against it. Over the winter, Abigail and John reunited. They had been apart for so long, and they knew their time was limited. They also discussed practicalities, like travel plans. The ship John traveled on, being captured by the English Navy, was a very real possibility. On the other hand, traveling in Europe as an aide to a diplomat would be an extremely valuable learning experience for a boy. Ultimately, John and Abigail decided that John Quincy, at ten years old, would accompany his father across the sea. Abigail worried about how Europe's, quote, snares and temptations might affect John Quincy. She saw a lot of herself in him, and knew he would have to guard himself against the decadence of Europe, especially France. On February 13, 1778, John Quincy struggled not to cry as he said goodbye to his mother and siblings. With, quote, full heart and weeping eye, Abigail watched her husband and son ride out of sight. In the spring, crossing the Atlantic usually only took a few weeks, in March, Abigail expected to hear that her Johns were safe in France. Instead, she heard that Benjamin Franklin had been assassinated. Then in May, New York loyalist newspapers were printing news that the ship the Adamses were on had been captured. She spent several months worrying about their safety. It wasn't until mid-June that she received word that John and John Quincy had made it safe to France. And in that letter... John teased Abigail about the education that the French ladies had, surpassing that of Americans. In a bad case of rotten timing, John managed to hit every nerve in Abigail's body. She wrote back an impassioned letter, partly on the education of women. In the late summer of 1778, 
the French fleet arrived in Boston Harbor. And Abigail was treated not only as the wife of a congressional delegate, an influential farmer and lawyer, but as the wife of a minister. This was her due, but it also would have been disconcerting. Abigail was humble in that she viewed herself primarily as the wife of an upper-middle-class intellectual and the daughter of a religious man. To be treated on the same level as a noblewoman would have been quite different from that which she was accustomed. After the departure of the French fleet, Massachusetts was quiet, and John's commission had been fulfilled. Despite his first letter, John was pretty miserable in France, and waited to be recalled so he and John Quincy could come home. Congress neglected to either recall or reassign him. So, he and John Quincy left France of their own accord in June 1779, before they had to delay another winter. In August, they arrived home in Braintree. John was elected to government once again. This time, however, he only had to ride to Cambridge. As part of the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention, he was able to return home to Braintree every weekend. He also pushed through a cause dear to Abigail's heart. Education. Massachusetts, still to this day, mandates free public education in its constitution, thanks to Abigail and John Adams. This domestic happiness was struck short yet again when Congress appointed John as Minister Plenipotentiary to represent America at trade and peace talks in Europe. Abigail did not write down her initial reaction. She didn't need to, because John was right there, and she could talk to him in person so we don't have it. However, the day after John set sail to Europe once more, with John Quincy and Charlie with him, she wrote him a letter lamenting how empty her home was, with her husband and sons gone from it. She asked, rhetorically but tellingly, and does your heart forebode that we shall again be happy? In 1780, as ever, her letters to John frequently contained business. He was still her primary source of items to sell. However, as fraud as cross-Atlantic communication could be, and as ignorant as he was about household items and fashions, it became clear that it would be easiest for Abigail to speak to wholesalers directly. And so she did, with his permission, cut him out of the procurement process entirely except for his name. She also told him that her investments did, quote, not increase in wealth, yet not diminish the capital. Unquote, which was, to put it lightly, a massaging of the truth. In fact, her investments were turning such profits that she floated the idea of investing in real estate in Vermont. John ignored the idea, so Abigail went ahead. John ignoring her seemed to turn into a trend as 1780 turned to 1781. She did not receive a single word from him until August. Other sources told her that her husband had moved to the Netherlands, that John Quincy, at the tender age of 14, had gone to Russia as a secretary to the ambassador, that Charlie had gotten sick and needed to be sent home. When Charlie's voyage was delayed and Abigail did not hear from him, she feared that his ship had gone down at sea. After Charlie's safe arrival, Abigail still had to account for his formal schooling, she decided that Charlie and Tommy would be best off in her brother-in-law Shaw's school, under the watchful eye of her sister Elizabeth. She also wrote John Quincy a letter, telling him to carefully observe and commit to writing all he saw in Russia, especially in comparing their government to those of France and America. 
he wrote her only one letter dated during his stay, and at the end wrote two incredibly long ones describing what his mother had asked him to write down during the stay and describing his lengthy trip back to the Hague. After Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown in October 1781, both Abigail and John were of the opinion that it would not drive the British to the table. However, in this, they were happily wrong. In November 1782, after nearly a year of parley, the commission arrived at a preliminary treaty with England and sent it back to Congress for approval. Abigail basked in the reflected fame, telling John that, quote, For myself I have little ambition or pride. For my husband, I freely own I have much, unquote. She saw that part of the reason for the treaty's existence was her own sacrifice. The sacrifice of her husband for nearly a decade and of her sons on the far side of a vast ocean. On July 14, 1782, Abigail's daughter Nabby turned 17. She was shy and taciturn, taking far more after her father than her mother in her manner. Like her mother, though, she yearned to see the world. Unlike Abigail, Nabby was young enough to think it would be possible if only her parents would let her. She began a courtship with a young man that Abigail rather liked, but John did not. Then she begged her father to let her come keep his house in Holland. Since these requests show up in Abigail's letters, it's reasonable to think that once again, Abigail liked the idea, but John objected. Until, in November 1783, he suddenly changed his mind and summoned his wife and daughter to join him in Holland. The winter was spent preparing for a spring voyage. Little Louisa, Abigail's niece, was now ten, and she dreaded being sent back to a mother she barely knew. Abigail promised her that she could live with them again on her return, but she couldn't take her with them across the world. Abigail's father had died in September, and his will had manumitted Phoebe, who, I believe, was the last slave owned by the Smith family, and was now an old woman. While the Adamses were away, Abigail arranged for her to live in their Braintree house rent-free. Arrangements were made for Abigail's sister Mary and her husband, and their cousin Cotton Tufts, to oversee the estate. Nabby was convinced to put her courtship on hold, and that if she left him in a year, she could marry him. On June 18, 1784, Abigail and Nabby were seen off by the women of Braintree as they made their way to Boston. They were all ready to board when... Surprise! Thomas Jefferson suddenly appeared and offered to escort them on the ship that he had reserved. But their travel plans were set in stone. On June 20th, Abigail and Navi Adams boarded the ship The Active and set sail for London. And that's where I'll leave the story. Tune in next time to hear all about the Adamses in Europe and Abigail's time as the first second lady and the second first lady of the new United States of America. Each month, I want to recommend a podcast that I love, and that I hope you will love too. This time, I recommend The History Chicks. The History Chicks is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Beckett and Susan, who spend an hour talking about amazing women in history. Their fourth ever episode was about Abigail Adams, and it's definitely worth a listen. For other women from the same time period, they've also covered the Schuyler sisters, Phyllis Wheatley, Madame de Pompadour, 
and Catherine the Great of Russia. My favorite episodes are the two-parter that they did on future podcast subject Jacqueline Kennedy and Nassis, and the episode on Queen Liliuokalani, the last queen of Hawaii. Thank you so much for listening to First Ladies of the USA. For transcripts and sources, please see the Abigail Adams post on firstladiesoftheusa.wordpress.com. You can also email me at firstladiesoftheusa at gmail.com, follow me on Facebook at firstladies.com forward slash firstladiesoftheusa, and follow us on Twitter at at firstladiespod. Hope to see you next month, and don't forget to remember the ladies.